0: Inside the Game brought to you by Raider Media. Welcome to Inside the Game. We find ourselves here at Killarney in Cape Town. Reason being it is the launch of the WRX, also the launch of the 2019 Dakar Rally team for Tuker-Zoo Racing South Africa. I'm here with uh, two motoring friends in Hannes Fissa and Voldo van der Waal, as well as SA racing legend Janil de Villiers, who was one of the six men confirmed to be taking part for Togodogazoo Racing South Africa, along the lines of uh, five others, four of which are returning. First, uh, Voldo and Hannes, uh, welcome. Voldo, talk us through uh, the changes, well, not, not changes, but the team. Well, the team stayed largely the same, which is good news for
1: the team. Obviously, consistency in a team is what you really want. Uh, there's just been the one change, and that's only due to Bernhardt Embrunke's navigator, Michel Peru, who raced with him uh, in 2018, retiring from the game. And he's now got another Frenchman to step up to the plate in the, in the form of Xavier
0: Panseri. Hannes Visser, uh, happy with uh, the team, looking at 2019, uh, a man of countless Dakars yourself, not as a racer, but uh, as a media man.
2: Very happy with the team. I think it's a very good mix of, of, of raw speed and talent and of course Janil's consistency and uh, Bernard last year, or this year rather, who was uh, such a re- revelation in the team and uh, hopefully if all of them can come to the party and bring the A-game, we should be able to uh, get a very good result.
0: Speaking of uh, the main man, Janil de Villis, he's uh, right here, Kili. Excited for next year?
3: Yeah, let's see. Um, you know, the announcement's made now. Uh, teams been presented, same as last year, basically, with the exception of one guy. So, like Valda said, good to have the continuity. Um, the race is going to be tough. We'll need um, all the help we can get. Um, we got a good car. Hilux is, um, you know, really refined a bit more from uh, last year. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the race and. Uh, you know, we really need to get uh, to get Toyota that place that they still need. We've had a couple of second places now and a couple of third places. So um, we're going to push out uh, or give everything to, to, ho- to, to hopefully achieve that. I think a big question that I have is that the country's
1: changed to just one place now. We, we used to go to two or three countries, different terrain and so on. And now we're just basically going to Peru, one country, plenty of sand. But what does that
3: mean for the team? Well, it's going to mean that I have to have that um, sand goggles on the whole time, or a bit more <laughs> than normal. But, uh, yeah, now look, I mean, 70% sand, it's, uh, we know Peru is very tough. Um, and, um, you know, in terms of dunes, it's probably the most difficult dunes I've done in my, my life there before. So, five days in Peru last year was extremely tough. So, ten days now is going to be very, very difficult. Um, you know, it is shorter, the deck is shorter than it used to be, a couple of days shorter, but I don't expect the intensity to be any different um, you know a lot of things can happen in 10 days and uh, you know in Peru you can have a two, 300 k stage which can, get, which can take you 5-6 hours so it's going to be exciting I think uh, a lot of things are going to happen uh, from day to day I think the race is going to be exciting to watch from the outside um, I don't think anybody's going to run away with the race. Um, So I expect an exciting race and I'm uh, really looking forward to to go there with the Hilux.
2: Janil, speaking of the sand, um, I think a lot of listeners and viewers aren't really familiar with the differences between the two-wheel drive buggies as they're called and the four-wheel drive cars. Four-wheel drive obviously sounds like a hell of an advantage on the sand, but uh, the the, the, the two types of cars are quite different. You can just explain the difference between two-wheel drive and four-wheel drive and the size of the tyres and everything that goes along with that.
3: Yeah, look, there's quite a few differences, um, but uh, you know, the main ones are that uh, obviously the, the two-wheel-drive cars are two-wheel-drive, four-wheel-drive are four-wheel-drive. But the two-wheel-drive cars are allowed a much bigger tyre than we are allowed in the four-wheel-drive. They are allowed, um, um, you know, basically free suspension travel, so a lot more suspension travel. In the four-wheel-drive we've got 280 mils, they've got free range of travel they can also inflate and deflate their tyres from within the car so automatically from within the car where we have to get out and get back in again uh, to do that and then the other big difference is that a two wheel drive car is about 300 kilograms lighter than a four wheel drive car now that makes a massive difference in the sand um, as most of the listeners would know, I don't know if they've been on the sand but some of them would have been on the sand is that the lighter you are on the sand the the easier it is to, to go over the sand so the way the rules are written now, it is a slight advantage to have a two-wheel drive car, especially when it's sandy. But, you know, in the Hilux, we've done so much development now, and, um, you know, we're really trying to push the envelope on, the, on, uh, on all the small things. And that we managed to get the car to a really good performance in the sand now. Um, and I think with our engine, uh, which is a petrol engine, we've got a really excellent response in the sand. Um, whereas most of the two-wheel drive cars are diesel engines, you know, so um, that's the main difference uh, between the two cars. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to get that balance of performance right for the guys that write the rules. But I think
2: it's quite close, so um, it should be a good
3: race between the two of us.
2: And just speaking about those engines, um, previous years we were racing up in Bolivia at three and a half, four thousand 4000 meters above sea level. The race has now dropped down to the coast and, and, and much lower altitudes, but it's not all good news for you, unfortunately.
3: Yeah, but uh, you know, the lower the altitude for us, the the better it would be. Um, because obviously we are normally aspirated engine and we don't have a turbo which helps at altitude. But then again, also compared to last year, they gave us one millimeter smaller on the restrictor. Which means we are breathing through a smaller hole of air. Um, so basically, um, we've got the car with the smallest restrictor. We've got a 37 mm uh, restrictor, where the the Persia has a 38 mm restrictor, and the Mini has a 39 mm restrictor. Uh, so you know, yeah, that's going to um, play out a little bit different. But the fact that we are at sea level should. You know, should help us a bit and uh, we, would, we wouldn't be at such a disadvantage uh, than we are normally at altitude because we have a normally aspirated engine. Tell us about the new guy. Well, the new guy you'll actually have to ask Bernard about because he's his guy um, <laughs> and I don't really know much about him. Uh, but I know his name is Xavier Panseri and I know he's French. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's a nice guy, So, uh, but I think Bernard would be better to answer that question. <laughs> tell us about the old guy and uh, Dirk van Zutsevitz. Yeah, well, the old guy I can tell you a lot about. Uh, Dirk has been with me for 12 years, uh, so we've been really been together for a long time. It's like a really long marriage. Um, so, yeah, it's, I'm excited to go back to the race with him and, um, you know, we're really motivated to try and do well. Um, you know, and like I said, you know, to push as hard as we can to try and give Toyota that um, position that they still need. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to, to going back with uh, with my uh, girlfriend.
2: Can you win this race outright?
3: Of course I can. Um, you know, the um, if, if, if I didn't think I could win it, then I should rather stay at home and have a nice New Year's party because uh, then I don't need to go to bed at 10 o'clock. But no, for sure. I think we have a good chance. Um, I think um, you know, with with a with a full factory Persia team out of the race at the moment, I think it, it definitely opens up uh, the you know the opportunity a little bit more. Um, and you know, we're going to be against the Mini and the one lone Persia of Sebastian Loeb. So I think we got an excellent chance, and um, we just need to make sure, as driver and co-drivers, now we, we we do a proper job and. Uh, you know, get there uh, in that first place because we need to give Toyota a, a win now. I mean, we and we desperately want to do that. The same, I think, is the same, and that Bernard feels the same about it as well.
1: Janil, you um, you mentioned the man, the uh, Sebastian Loeb, very briefly. Obviously, he's been in the race a couple of times now, but he just hasn't seemed to have been able to put everything together. How scary is the prospect of him actually getting it all hooked up? Does it worry you?
3: Well if he gets it all hooked up it's uh, it might be a bit of a problem you know he's uh, not nine times world rally champion for nothing and to you know in my opinion he's the best racing driver in the world and I'm including all drivers here Formula 1 everything um, you know this guy is phenomenal so he learns very quickly you know he's done the race now three times and. Um, He's a very quick learner. Last time he had a bit of a mishap in the dunes. Now, that can happen to anybody. The fact that there are 70% of sand and a lot of dunes levels it a little bit, but he's a very quick learner, and um, I expect him to be, uh, definitely be a factor.
2: Well, besides Loeb, uh, maybe hooking it up or not, you also have the experience of Peter Ansel and science. I mean, those guys are old, but they've got experience, and it obviously counts for a lot at the Dakar.
3: Yeah, you know, Dakar, it's probably the race where experience counts for, counts for the most. Um, you know, last year we saw Carlos winning the race, I mean, at 55 years of age, so it just shows you experience counts for a lot and, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with his speed and you have Peter Hansel, which is the old uh, fox in the Dakar, he's won so many Dakars um, and, you know, he's always a factor, so I expect a big challenge from them. <laughs>
0: I was with you yesterday morning out in Stellenbosch. You took part in a cycle race. What was it again? What is it called?
3: Uh, it was the Origin of Trails Mountain Bike Race.
0: And uh, you're quite a fit bugger. I mean, that goes without saying. Uh, I and mean, we chatted a bit about it before. That guys think that they can get behind the wheel. It's the car doing all the driving. Uh, it's not necessary to the castle. Well, it's not the case at all. Um, I mean, your, your training for Dakar's pretty strenuous.
3: Yeah, it's quite hard. I mean, I believe you've got to be very fit. And you, know, you can't blame the, the normal guys out there that they think you, you know, it's like getting into a 4x4 and, uh, you know, driving over rough terrain a little bit quickly. I mean, these cars are quite physical to drive, and you only realize that once you get put in the car and you, you actually experience it yourself. Um, so, for that reason, you have to be fit because, I mean, it's like, you sit in one of those cars for six hours at a time it's like being put into a boxing ring and somebody hitting you from all sides all the time and um, you know if you're very fit you recover quickly Um, you can keep your concentration for much longer and um, you can just do a better job overall at the end of the day so I I like to be fit.
1: If I can just button and just mention I've been fortunate to do a number of laps with Janil and some of the other guys on some really tough terrain and, and what he says doesn't actually do it justice because as a, a fairly fat, unfit Dutchman going in the car with him, um, I took a beating in, in four or five laps. I one, didn't want to get out or didn't want to be in the car anymore and we only did maybe 20Ks, 25Ks. These guys do hundreds of kilometers. so I think he's selling himself short a little bit, takes a lot more than he lets on, trust me. How many Dakar's have you done, Valdi Well I don't know, Honest knows how many I've done.
2: Uh, I think you've done six or seven, yeah, yeah six, or
1: seven. Well right. six <laughs> or seven.
2: And, and just to confirm that's from a
0: media perspective in covering the race, I mean obviously the drivers and navigators, uh, they take a beating and it's extremely tough on them, but I mean anyone covering the race, I mean I've been a couple, on a few
2: myself, but uh, it's, it's tough for everyone involved. Well I, I, I think Janil's got it easy, you know, he gets up in the morning, gets in a race car with air conditioning, where he goes there's no traffic. Um, <laughs> And, and, and he's and, got and, someone telling him where to well, go. He's got somebody telling him where to go and there's no speed limits. In fact, he's, he's in, in, you know they want him to go as fast as possible. We spend um, a lot of hours in the car at 80Ks an hour in Bolivia. Fortunately, we're not going to Bolivia this yeah. year. And we can't go faster than 80Ks an hour, otherwise he will get a penalty. Um, and by the time we get to the bivouac, he's all done, and he's got somebody giving him a massage. I think he's got it very easy. <laughs> yeah, to yeah, but
3: you can have a beer when you come into the bivouac, and a couple of beers maybe, but I can't have any. So that's very bad for me.
0: And, and he can have a couple of brandies as well.
2: can Well, then there's that, but okay.
0: <laughs> but, uh, Gilly, I mean, in terms of the navigating side, I mean, we all understand it, but a lot of people don't. It's not a case of just saying, cool, you've got to go to that flag, you've got to go here, you've got to go here. I mean, you're in the middle of nowhere, there's no markers,
3: there's sand everywhere. And it, how do you do it? Well, I mean, first of all, we get, we get a roadbook. We get issued a roadbook before the start of the stage, and uh, you've got to follow the roadbook. You have two GPSs in the car, but they're not switched on, so you've got to follow a compass heading. And in the roadbook, you have various GPS points that you've got to uh, collect. Um, So you've got to follow your roadbook and your compass headings to certain GPS points at certain kilometers. Once you get to within uh, a 800 meter radius, the GPS will switch on, the arrow will point you to the point and it will register that you've been there and switch off again. So then you navigate with your roadbook and your compass heading to the next point. Um, Now some of these radiuses are uh, 300 meters in the dunes. and that. I mean it sounds like a lot but it's not a lot if you're out in the open desert. Uh, if you off by five or four degrees on your uh, cap heading, going in a certain direction, over 10 k's, that can mean that you're out by more than a kilometer getting to the other side and then you uh, miss the waypoint and then you don't know where it is. Um, and in this instance if you miss waypoints, it carries a penalty from 20 minutes to up to four hours per waypoint. So um, it's quite tricky you know if you go slowly it's obviously not so uh, not so difficult but if you go at 120 hundred and plenty it's a little bit more tricky.
2: I have to ask, what do you do halfway through a stage if you need the toilet?
3: Well I, have a, I wear a nappy so <laughs> you can laugh at me now but <laughs> now are. Yeah, it's probably the best thing uh, to wear and uh, you can let loose in there but um, only to a certain amount or certain whatever. Um, so that we find that the best uh, some guys wear other stuff and what they view so um, yeah that's what we do you need to find something that's comfortable and I mean my wife always jokes that in January I've got two young kids that uh, in January the whole, whole family are, is in nappies except herself <laughs> <laughs> listen do you have to go to go where
0: I don't know you, you said you are in a rush a little earlier can you, can you stick around
3: no, I actually have to go
0: uh, that's fine we'll carry on with
3: the conversation <laughs> ourselves
0: yeah. Off he goes. Bye.
3: <laughs> Cheers, lads. Thanks for chatting to you.
0: Khili, uh, just one more thing. I mean, um, are you still there? Uh, yeah. I mean, 2019, before you say goodbye, uh, it's, it's going to be a big one. I mean, I mean, you keep on saying that you reckon that you guys can do it. I mean, you wouldn't be going if you didn't think so.
3: But um, are you more confident than ever? I think we have a, you know, for the pure fact that there's no... You know, big big factory team. You know, if there's a big factory team in the in the race, um, it's always very very difficult to beat them. So, there's no factory team, uh, no you know full factory team, and then you've always got a good chance. I mean, uh, many things can happen in this race, and, and I am definitely um, you know more optimistic uh, than I was last year at this stage. Um, you know, against the full might of the the Peugeot Works factory team, so we're going to give it our best shot and um, you know hopefully we can uh, we can do the job
2: if it's not you who wins this event who is most likely to win it the old man him, the Spaniard him, him, or, him, well, him or the team
3: it, it's got to be if it's not if it's not us let's let's hope it's one of the other two toyota drivers just from
1: my side i can tell you that i've been fortunate to take pictures of you on the podium in second position and third position a number of times please please give us a, a chance to take a, a picture of you in the number one spot
0: I would love, I, I would love that. Gold, cool. Daniel de Villiers, thanks so much. Uh, you're going to be on your way, but uh, we'll stick around. We'll chat a bit more. Is that? Oh, we've got Glyn Hall here. Actually, let's get Glyn Hall quick before we do. Yeah, let's get Glyn. He's uh, team principal of Twedexy Racing South Africa. Glyn, uh, excited? Yeah, I'm really am excited. It's, uh,
4: it's almost there now. Three weeks uh, today, the cars will be ready to fly. So now it's time to get excited.
0: Talk us through the team.
4: So we've got Bernard Tambrinka, who was the revelation of the dakar last year a real big surprise not only to us as a team but to the whole uh, really dakar fraternity so bernard's back bernard's not back with his co-driver though Michel perron who was uh, really fantastic last year decided to retire at 62. he did tell us before the race so uh, we're we're pretty happy with that yeah so he will be replaced by xavier pansiri and uh xavier and Bernard need to find each other and uh, get settled in, but for sure Bernard's going to be a, a mega force to reckon with. And then we've got uh, Nasser al king of the dunes, um, a possible winner last year on many occasions, so Nasser's never, never give up attitude, uh, we'll be using that to the full. Partnered again by Matthew Bommel, who's uh, regarded as absolutely one of the top co-drivers out there, and then we have our own superhero, Janil de Villiers, partnered again this year by uh, by Dirk van Zitsevitz. Janil determined to try and win this race. Um, it would be great for us being a South African team, of course, so uh, yeah, it's all go, a lot of, uh, lot of pressure.
0: Uh, you mentioned Bernard and I know that Voldu he's a man close to your heart, uh, you're Dutch uh, by Heritage, and uh, you're supporting him as well as you were with all the guys, but talk us through 2018, the stage that he won Fiambala.
1: Well, the, the Fiambala stage has become part of the, the Dakar law of South America, ever since the race moved from North Africa to South America, that was one of the stages that you want to win. And it, it really is the one with massive dunes, it's far away from everything, the heat plays a massive role and obviously as it gets warmer the sand gets softer, so the, 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 the early drivers um, have, have, have more grip and then as it heats up they have less grip and obviously they go up to high altitude as well, so it's a massive mix of things that make Fiambala, probably the most fearsome stage of the South American Dakars. And to see Bernard come through and win it completely on merit, there was no one that had issues ahead of him.
2: Everybody had a reasonable run, and he came through and and he he won it. I I think also that the drivers know amongst themselves, um, you know, they say Monaco, uh, Formula One drivers want to win Monaco, but they know that spa is the driver's circuit. So amongst themselves, they know if you win Fiambala, You've got big balls. You did You've got good. You <laughs> got hair on your chest. You deserve respect if you win that specific stage. I see you nodding over there, Glenn.
4: Yeah, for sure. Pinball is very tough, and uh, over the years, it's claimed many victims. Carlos Sainz, leading the Dakar by 30 minutes, crashed there, fell off. It's a very difficult stage. But in Peru, we've got one to uh, replace it, and for now, it slips my, ni- ne- my mind—the name of it. But stage five last year was a killer. It was massive dunes, soft impossible. Both Janil and uh, and Nasser fell prey to it last year. Nasser broke the gearbox there, getting stuck in a bowl. Janil had a tire come off the rim. So uh, I think stage five of the Peru is going to take its place. Glenn, I think that was the one near San Juan de Marcona. Exactly, that was the
1: one.
2: From San Juan to Arequipa. I think we're doing the same one again this year.
4: Yeah, and guess who won that stage? Guess who really edged his uh, name on the decker was Stefan Peter Hansel again. He knew it was going to be tough and uh, he had a perfect run.
0: I know with uh, Bernard in Brinker. I mean, obviously, revelation. I think that we're going to keep on using that word with him. But I mean, what a heartbreaking end! Uh, right at the end, uh, his race coming to a close, and uh, he's got some unfinished business for 2019.
4: Without question. I mean, when Bernard's car stopped and they said it was an engine problem, I just said impossible. I could not believe it, and I refused to believe it. I thought it was some other external factor, and in the end, it was a simple, simple thing that uh, you know hurt the engine it was simply running too cold earlier in Bolivia and it did some damage and it just didn't make the end of the race that's all
0: I just sad. I mean we were all there at the finish and we saw him come through and you know if I if I remember correctly he he stayed out there he didn't get airlifted back till the very end
4: yeah it wasn't so safe where the car was there was a lot of spectators that as there are everywhere in South America and uh, you know, he was worried the car was going to get stripped and uh, you know, uh, people were taking mementos and they were getting bigger and bigger, so Bernard really did the team thing and stayed there with the car. He's a great team player.
1: And he, and he took
4: it in such good grace, I mean if
1: I put myself in these sweaty racing boots I think if I would uh, had to retire at that stage of the race I'd be throwing helmets and toys and everything, but maybe that's just me, but he, he was such a gentleman about
4: it and accepted his fate. You know, as a driver, there's a few things that uh, can influence that. Once, if you've done a really great race and everybody has recognized that, I mean, as a driver myself, there was nothing worse than you were having a, you know, a stage and a rally, and you were doing brilliantly well, and then just at the end, you got a puncture or something. Nobody ever knew. Uh, everybody knew for Bernard, he knew himself how, how well he went. So, yeah, the disappointment was massive. But deep down, he knew what a good he job knew, he did. He knew what he'd done.
2: Glenn, what do you think is worse? To, um, to prepare for a whole year go through all the heartache of getting ready then getting there and maybe fall out on the first day or second day or have a really good race like Bernard did and fall out in the <laughs> last day that's a good day. question yeah
4: <laughs> it's one that's got an impossible answer but without question to fall out in the last day and achieve what Bernard did much better than falling out on the first day and thinking to yourself what could have been.
0: I also think it's a far more costly exercise if you aren't for the first day all that money
4: although I think it's uh, no 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 we spend <laughs> plenty of money during the race to get <laughs> Bernard where it was more plenty. <laughs>
1: Um, Glenn, a little bit of a more technical question about the tyres, because in in Dakar 2018, obviously finding, maybe you can explain a little bit to us, why is it so difficult for us to find the balance um, as a four-wheel drive team, we can't inflate and deflate on on the go like the two-wheel drives
4: can. Now, how does it influence our planning on a day? Oh, massively, massively. Last year we really had a, a bit of a problem. The tire, it was still a good fast tire made by uh, BF Goodrich, no question, but it didn't suit the dunes in that degree and then the uh, the manufacturer of the tire with the, um, how can I put it, being able to stay on the wheel rim was not perfect, so that hurt us a lot and uh, this year we've selected a very specific tire out of what was offered from BF Goodrich so we've developed that over two development loops or three actually and um, the performance is very positive the means that you can climb the dunes at a higher pressure on the gravel it's not designed to be on the gravel so there it'll be a compromise but in the dunes or the soft sand it's going to be a lot faster
1: I get lots of people that ask me about tire inflation
4: deflation and Obviously we also have a system in, in the car that allows us to to inflate and deflate, but you have to stop and get out. Which is what Bernard did on stage 5 last year at San Marco de Kona. He, uh, Michel Perron said, Bernard, you've got to stop. He just said, Bernard, you got to stop. Bernard didn't want to stop. And Michel Perron's experience shone through. He stopped, they let the tyres down. I mean, that's two and a half minutes. Can you imagine the feeling as a crew when you're sitting there letting tyres down for you know, two, two minutes plus? Then he got in and he did a great time, he was third overall in the stage, only to two Peugeots and uh, it was the right thing to do. But of course, if you cannot deflate, that's two and a half minutes in your pocket and uh, confidence is what it's all about as well. So if the tyre has got good performance, the drivers can attack more and you get even more performance than you get off the watch in a simple test, you know, going around the same route. If they can attack more, and that means jumping over dunes, landing with the wheels turned. If they don't come off the wheel, they don't get. They won't get stuck then. And suddenly, you get much more performance than you actually measured.
0: Let's talk a bit about uh, one of the Dakar legends, Nassar Latier. <coughs> I've to spent too much time with him, and we're very lucky in that a lot of us have spent a lot of time with him away from the race car. I mean, one of the most unassuming guys you'll find outside of the car, given his status. Hell of a nice guy.
4: Yeah, he's... Uh, look. Nasser is extremely determined. He promised Akio Toyota, um, you know, the president of Toyota worldwide, that he would win the Dakar for him. But actually, in his mind, he wants to win it just for himself, and uh, nothing wrong with that. And uh, last year, I watched Nasser getting more drained and drained and drained as the race went on. He um, he didn't like the altitude at all. That hurt him, but he never gave up.
0: He's a uh uh, Olympic bronze medalist uh, shooting and I know Hannes you enjoy your shooting as well so you spend a bit of time with him talking things outside of racing well he's,
4: he's just won the the gold medal in the Middle East shooting competition yesterday so that's why he's not here
2: what he does with the shotgun is extremely extremely uh, you know he's very talented to be able to do what he does but also that's also a sign of his dedication I mean I spoke to him about his training routine for the Olympics especially and um, what he does, skid shooting is, is, is all about routine and a pattern and a rhythm. And it's about muscle memory doing the exact same thing over and over again. And I would quite easily shoot between we one or two or 3,000 rounds in a practice session. And if he misses one clay, he'll go? start over and start again, you know, so that, that's also an indication of exactly how uh, determined he is.
4: I think uh, last year, Derek and, and Hannes, you know, on stage two, Matthew got Ill, physically sick in the car a little bit of that was the nervousness of opening the road where no bikes had been that the pressure on them was enormous and they lost 14 minutes in the stage we had a meeting after the race and I said to Nessa you know what no we fight he said. I said shall we strip the car all the tools everything else give it a massive go no spare parts he says let's do it let's see if I can win the next stage by a big margin and put us back Jesus, the next day he stopped, changed two punctures and still won by nine minutes, you know, and Carlos Saint said to Janil after the stage, he says, and it was a haze on the stage, it was the wind was blowing and you couldn't see properly, and uh, Carlos said to Janil, "NASA came past me and I couldn't keep up."
0: Well, I mean, on the subject of Hilly, yeah, in the blue-eyed way from Stellenbosch, uh, he is, uh, you've got to have him, I mean, the rock around which your team's best. Fe- I'm feeling
4: a, a, the determination from the past coming out in Janil uh, lately. I, I phoned him very early the other morning. I said, are you thinking about winning? And he said, every second. And um, I think there's a determination this time. The car's good. He's been driving it all year. The co-driving with Dirk, with uh, they're kind of got a newly formed partnership again and I see a real fire in him, so uh, don't don't, uh, don't place your
0: money on too many other people, I think. It's amazing, I was at his house yesterday for the first time and I was looking around his study and he's got this massive cabinet and, as expected, wall-to-wall trophies. I mean, there's very little in the world of motor racing that he's competed in, Baldu, that uh, he hasn't won. Yeah, and the biggest thing to me as, a, as an
1: observer about Janil is how clever he actually is in terms of strategy and planning a championship. He, he never uh, enters the championship just to win one race. He enters it to win the championship. So he's got that ability to keep his eye on the long game, and that's exactly what plays into his hands at Dakar, and that's why he's got such good results at Dakar.
0: Am I right? In two thousand and nine, when he won, he didn't win a stage.
4: Uh, no, I think he won a stage. He won Fiambala. Oh, he did he win Fiambala? Fiam Fiam he, he won. He, he won two stages: one Fiambala and one stage that he didn't want to win because it meant he had to open on another one that uh, Carlos followed him and, uh, you know, that, that they lost five minutes uh, that he didn't want to lose, yeah.
0: Well, that just goes to show the whole Piambala thing once again, I mean, how important it is. Of course, not in the grand scheme of things, but uh, if you can win that, then you can win a Dakar. Oh,
2: well, absolutely. Um, you just have to have the pace and survive and, and, and get through unscathed in the other end. And that's uh, what Janil does most of the time.
4: Well, Stefan Peter Hansel won plenty of DACOs and he's not won that many stages. Oh, there we go. Do you need to go? Uh, We do. The plane's not fired up yet, but it's getting uh, getting serviced on the runway. I'm I'm on a later plane. What's the time now? I think we we all need to go here. Pretty much.
1: We need to. But I I I must say that what I'm looking forward to is is this sort of exploring more of the technicalities of the race so that people in general can learn about the Dakar and how intricate the racing actually is it's not just about filling up a bucky and going millies there's a lot that goes on into that race
4: well we analyzed the race last year and uh, it took two weeks for two engineers to go through every piece of data we had there were 92 measured time sections of which we had data for And if you take three of those sections, sorry, two of those sections away for NASA and two of them away for Stefan Peter Hansel, who was leading the race by 45 minutes, remember, when he crashed, took the wheel off. NASA and Stefan were never more than nine minutes apart in 50 hours of motor racing. And if you look and analyze that, you
0: really don't need to win every stage to win this race. Oh, it's a beautiful Cape Town uh, wrapping up here. We've got a plane to catch. Uh, Glenn, thanks so much and uh, best of luck for next year.
4: Thank you. And we'll see you in Lima. And we're all revved up and ready to go. I'm really getting
0: excited now. Another thing I'm excited for is that we'll be doing this uh, throughout uh, the Dakar Rally 2019, this podcast. And uh, you'll get to see the insights. Uh, we'll be doing it from the car. A lot of the traveling we'll be doing and hopefully catching up with you guys after each stage.
4: Yeah, but you can't have me for this long every day. We are busy uh, 23 hours and 30 minutes of the day. Oh, we'll, we'll bank what we can now. Thanks, Glenn. Yeah. Cheers.
0: Cheers, gents. Uh, have a safe flight home. and We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to Inside the Game.
2: Brought to you by Raider Media.